Hello, everyone. Welcome to How We Work. I'm here at Work Human Live with a very special guest, Reshma Sojani, who just did a fabulous session with our very own Sarah Whitman. So in case you don't know, let me tell you who Reshma is. Super accomplished. She is the CEO of Girls Who Code, founder of the Marshall Plan for Moms, the author of Brave, Not Perfect, and Pay Up, and the mother of three, right? Two, but I have a dog baby, so you can still say three. All right. <laughs> Two human babies and one dog baby, Reshma Sojani. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Right, so we're work human, and we'd like to start off by introducing our audience to the humanity of our guests. So we want to get to know the human first before we start to talk about all of the other things. So I know a little bit about your background from your fabulous TED Talk and also from your presentation that we're just coming from. But for our listeners who have not had the benefit of either of those, can you just tell us a little bit about the person, Reshma? Well, I'm the daughter of refugees. My parents came to this country from Uganda in 1973. They were expelled. They were two of a thousand refugees who got status to come here. And I think that experience of being the daughter of refugees really impacted my life. It's what drove me to public service. It's what made me want to give back to this country that literally saved my parents' life. It's what made me an activist because, again, so much of what happened to the Indian population in Uganda was because they weren't part of the political process and their homeland was literally taken away from them. So it had a profound impact on me. I'm the mother of two plus a dog baby. And I think, again, the identity of being a mother in America is so much of what drives me. I've been an activist my whole life. You know, they say in Hinduism, like, what do you put on this earth to do? And I feel very called and compelled to fight for women and girls. And I've always been that way since I was like 13 years old. So I looked you up on Wikipedia. And if they have your age right, I know your age. <laughs> You're super, super accomplished. And I'm an immigrant. And I feel like something that is in common between those two backgrounds is this pressure to be perfect and succeed and like being your parents or your ancestors' wildest dreams. And so there's two sides of that, right? Like the pressure to succeed and then how you react when you don't succeed. So I want to talk about those two things with you. In your TED Talk, you joked and you said, don't worry, this is not a talk about failure. <sighs> but then you do talk about a pretty big and visible failure and the impact that has had on you and how you approach things after that. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and maybe give them some advice about yeah. failure. I mean, look, I always wanted to be a public servant and I thought I would do that by running for political office. And I finally found the courage to do it at age 33. And I naively thought like I could meet every voter, shake every hand and I'd win because the person with the best ideas wins, right? And during my campaign, like I had gotten John Legend to do not just one, but two oh concerts God, for me. John I know, Legend. John's a dear friend. You know, I, I riled people up. I got them excited. We were on the front page of every paper. And I really, on election day, you know, when you sit at subway stations in New York City, everyone tells you they're voting for you, right? So uh -huh. I was like, I got this. Uh huh. And I got crushed. I mean, smoked. Like, it wasn't even close. 
But what was so profound for me was like, this is the thing that I've wanted since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. This is the thing that I had thought that God had put me on this earth to do. And when it didn't work out for me, it should have broken me. You know, I think oftentimes, I think especially as daughters of immigrants, my parents were always telling me, be careful. Don't color outside the lines. Make yourself small. And I think that was coming from an instinctual, I understand this now as a parent, because they wanted to protect us. Yes. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. From disappointment, from harm. And so in their minds, if you do something and you go for it and it fails, don't take risks because maybe you won't be able to recover. And so when I woke up the next day, again, devastated, crying, humiliated, all the things, I also still woke up intact. And what I mean by that, it was a revelation for me that like, maybe failure doesn't break you. Maybe it doesn't make you feel shame for the rest of your life. And so that was the beginning of having a very fundamentally different approach to life and to failure in particular. Whereas now it's like, for me, failure is a privilege. When I look at all these men that are running these companies, they've failed one, two, three, four times. And the thing about failure is failure allows you to learn. I love Serena Williams. And Serena Williams sits at the edge of her ability in a coach who says, do it again, do it again, do it again. To be great, and I want to be great, you have to make mistakes. You have to fail. Thank you for sharing that. So it sounds like this failure made you braver for the future. I think my failure made me braver, but it also made me less afraid. Because again, I think the thing that I was afraid of is that if I tried something and I failed, it would break me. And the story that I talk about in my TED Talk was about, again, why girls don't show the line of code that they wrote when the semicolon's in the wrong place. And when I told that story in the TED stage, I was inundated by women saying to me, well, I do this too. And so somewhere along their life, girls had learned basically to like give up before they tried. Because we learned how to be good girls, how to gravitate towards the things that we're good at. And we didn't build that failure muscle, that bravery muscle Mm -hmm. that allowed us to kind of build that sense of resiliency for when you try something and it doesn't work out. Yeah. So I think that that is such an important lesson. You've also mentioned a couple of times now about this being what you were put on the earth to do and doing things that you consider meaningful and being an activist and changing the world. I feel similarly about what I do. Do you have any advice for people who are trying to find that meaning and purpose in their life? Well, one, I think, well, I have two things to say about that. One is like, I think that you have to do a lot of things you don't like. So I had a lot of jobs I hated, (laughs) a lot of jobs I hated, and I had to quit or get fired a lot of times to the point where I found myself now in the work that I'm doing, like I'm much more clear about what I want to do. Mm -hmm. But part of getting that clarity of purpose is by figuring out what I don't want to do. And I'll have moments like, you know, I stepped off as the CEO of Girls Who Code two years ago to build Moms First, which is my new organization now, which used to be called Marshall Plan for Moms. But part of that journey as I was deciding to step off was this kind of, again, this juncture, what do I want to do? Do I want to run for office again? Do I want to go do this other thing? Do I want to build another nonprofit? And so we have to also kind of find moments where you get to kind of look at different decision-making paths, but then really listen to the universe about what resonates with you. And this brings me to my second thing. Look, I am now on this journey right now of finding more space in my life to be quiet so I can listen to the divine. 
And what I mean by that is like, if you're constantly, I'm a doer and I'm like, I'm always driving. I'm always getting things done. I'm always kind of helping people. I'm always doing this. And when you're constantly living at that vibration, you can't listen to the signs that are coming your way. And I'm realizing that more and more, like my soul is actually craving for more quiet, for more creative energy. And I think why this is so important at this moment is if you look at the world, there's just really fundamental shifts that are happening in politics, in business, in families, everywhere that we need different kinds of leaders. Yes. We need to engage in different kinds of fights. And so if I'm still living in 1985 vibration, (laughs) right, because that was the last time I was quiet, then I'm going to miss this new world and miss what I'm meant to do in this new world. So I'm definitely, I haven't figured it out, but I'm definitely on a journey right now for finding more of that creative, quiet space. And that does mean for me, I have to feel less guilty about finding joy and about having fun. It's funny, I was at my hotel coming over here and I was just looking up at the elevator and it was like saying, well, I guess my hotel allows you to rent a skateboard, you know, allows <laughs> you to like, you, you know what I mean? Do all these things that I was like, I should do that. I should rent a skateboard and just try to skateboard around the city. Right. Like, you, you know what I mean? But oftentimes, but I can't. You want to know why? Because I booked a red eye flight and I got here an hour before and I you know, did yes. a speech and then yes. I was going to, I never bake in time for me to go do the things that are going to allow me to be still and quiet. I felt everything you just said deep in my bone marrow. And it's like we've spoken before because I've spoken about this on this podcast. So at the beginning of 2020, I had a set of serious health issues. Thought I was going to die. I'm not going to die. Everything's fine. I'm fine. However, that moment does make you reevaluate what you're doing with your life. Mm. And then the pandemic happened. And so The confluence of those things meant I was socially isolating very, very hard, not even going to the supermarket. I was laid off at the time. And so, yes, I was very still and having those conversations with myself. And I did emerge with a much clearer sense of what the universe needed from me. And I've said that before. And I've also said that my current role at Work Human has delivered, like you ask and the universe delivers. So mm. thank you for that. I can see I that really in your face. That. And I can see that, like you're, that you. you have clarity and joy. And that's right. And the thing is, and this goes back to us being daughters of immigrants, I think we are raised to push, push, yes. push, work, push, push. And so we don't actually let the divine show up to help us because we're not supposed to do it by ourselves. Yes. And that is a very cultural lesson that I have to unlearn that is so hard to unlearn because I don't know who I am without working my ass off. I realized like, in that moment that. that I hadn't sat still without working for such an extended period of time in about 20 years, in about 20 years, actually more than that. So yeah, you're right. We are conditioned to just keep going. Okay, so I want to talk about these fabulous organizations of yours. So let's start with Girls Who Code. That is an organization that aims to close the gender gap. And that's something you talk a lot about. So it aims to close the gender gap in tech by building a pipeline of future female engineers. Can you take us back to the aha moment for you that led to you founding that organization? So I was running this race and I lost. And I remember thinking, well, if all the 
And I wanted to give back. I didn't want to go back to working in the private sector. So I was thinking about all the problems that I saw on the campaign trail. What's someone that resonated with me? And in 2010, tech was starting to really boom. And I remember going into computer science classes and just seeing lines and lines of boys and not a girl in sight. And again, as the daughter of immigrants, my father used to always say to me, you know, Beta, you could be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. <laughs> because it was about finding a job where you could make a great wage and march into the middle class. And that was tech back then. Mm-hmm. And so I built Girls Who Code to create opportunity in an industry that had an abundance of opportunity. And 10 years later, we've taught 500,000 girls to code, reached, you know, half a billion through our work. You know, right before the pandemic, we had 10,000 Girls Who Code clubs. We've increased the amount of girls majoring in computer science and college campuses. We've built a mass movement, one of the largest women and girls organizations in, in the world. I raised $100 million for my nonprofit over a decade, and it's been one of the biggest joys of my life. Wow. Congratulations on that. Now let's talk about your second organization. You mentioned that it has a new name. Can you repeat yes. what that new name is? So it's called Moms First. It was the Marshall Plan for Moms. And it really was built out of Girls Who Code in many ways, because again, you know, as I talked about on on stage today, so many of my students during the pandemic couldn't go on to major in computer science because their mothers were essential workers and they had to stay back and take care of their siblings. So the fact that we have a two-generational cycle of poverty in our country because we haven't fixed the broken structure of care, Mm -hmm. right? 70% of Black women are both the single breadwinners and the single caretakers, And so if you live in a country that doesn't have paid leave, where the cost of childcare is rising faster than the cost of inflation, you never give women of color the opportunity to actually march up into the middle class because you haven't fixed the structure of care. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, Marshall Plan for Moms is a nonprofit that's working to get paid leave, affordable childcare, and pay equity in as many places and spaces by 2027, and really kind of through public and private partnerships and building again, a movement, an army of moms in the workplace to really start making this kind of structural change that we need to see in the workplace. That's something else I've heard you talk about that I'm really inspired by. So in your talk that you just gave for Work Human, you said, we bought the lie that we have to fix women instead of fixing the structure. I don't know if you saw me, you probably didn't. (laughs) I was at the back of the room snapping like, yes, preach, you know? So I absolutely love that. And thank you for the work you're doing in your organization to fix that structure. But what I'm really interested in getting your take on is, can you talk about imposter syndrome in the context of that statement? Mm, I'm giving a very big commencement speech about this exact topic. So I will save the good stuff. I was actually just practicing my speech before I walked over here. I mean, listen, I don't believe in imposter syndrome and I refuse to like almost even talk about it anymore. Because I think imposter syndrome is a strategy that's been used as women to stall our progress, to make us think that there's something wrong with us rather than make us think there's something wrong with the system. Anytime 82% of women feel a certain emotion, which is like we feel like we don't belong or we're not qualified, it means that it's not our fault. It's the structure's fault. And again, what I mean by that is that imposter syndrome makes you feel like you're not qualified, that you're a fraud, that there's a deficiency with you. And that sentiment, I often think, is used to make women feel like, well, if you just had this other skill, if you just had more confidence, if you just learned how to do this thing, you would be okay. Mm -hmm. And I think what we need to really say is, no, that's not the problem. The problem is, is I work in a workplace that doesn't have structural supports. I work in a workplace that is 
sexist, racist, transphobic, homophobic. You know, I work in a workplace that has no paid leave or affordable childcare. I work in a workplace that pays women of color less, you know what I mean, than anyone else. That's the problem, not me. I love that our listeners just heard you say that. So unlike the Taylor Swift song, yeah. it's not us. We're not the problem. This is my line in my commencement speech. It's me. I'm the problem. No, we're not the problem. We are not the problem. So let's keep talking about organization. So I don't know if you know, but here at Work Human, we do our own research and we just released a new research report called The Evolution of Work. And in that research, we're looking at different personas and what they want and need from the workplace. And one of the groups we're looking at is caretakers. And when we looked at caretakers, we found, not surprisingly, that they report a need for flexibility more than others in the workplace. And even more than that, they are the most willing to take a pay cut to get that, especially in tech. So do you have any advice for companies who want to be more attractive to and supportive of caregivers like parents? Well, one, I think that you should be offering flexibility, but not offering it, giving a pay cut. I think the fact that we, you know, this is kind of how a lot of women felt when they were having a reduced schedule is that they were working the same amount of hours. They were just getting paid less for it. So I think we need to be careful not to fall back into that trap. Absolutely. That we've seen happen before. And I think we need to pay attention to the data. Every data from like the Fed has shown that there's no productivity decrease with remote work. So the problem is we got used to a workplace where people were in their seats nine to five and simply we thought people were working if they were doing that. And we got an opportunity, I think the pandemic gave us an opportunity to work in a different way that suited families, that suited caregivers, that suited people who had disabilities, that suited people of color, literally suited trans, I mean, everybody, you know what I mean? Yes. Everybody felt like they were thriving from this, except a subset of folks Yep. that are pushing a demand to return back to normal that wasn't working for anybody else. And I think I said that this is the new revolution. I think we have to just continue to resist that and keep fighting for what we need and fighting for it without saying that we're going to take a pay cut for it. I completely agree. Thank you for that. So my last question is a bit of a fun question. People who really know me know that I am a huge Lizzo fan. Oh. I am obsessed. You know, I met her, right? Yes, of course <laughs> I know you met her. When I saw you as one of the people she brought on stage, I was in my living room screaming, oh my God, we know her. I'm going to meet her. So for our listeners, just kind of let us know what that felt oh like. My God. like. What did it mean to you to get that kind of cosign of what you're doing and such prominent exposure for your work and for your organizations? Yeah, so Lizzo kind of, invited 17 of us to come up on stage when she was awarded the People's Choice Champion Award. More than how I felt, I want to tell you how I felt about Lizzo and about how she is like a shining example of what we need in our leaders. Now, here's a woman who's young. She's not Beyonce or, you know what I mean, someone who's been there, or even Taylor Swift, right, who's been there for 10, that has had enough power that they could feel like I could give this moment, not for myself, but give it to others. And the fact that a young Black woman Mm -hmm. did something no one has ever done before, which is given her stage to other women who are fighting for underserved women, was such a gift. 
to witness that. Oh, I love her. To witness that. I mean, come on. Like what an, and this is what I mean by how the world is changing and how this generation is so different in the way. Thankfully. Thankfully, because we need more Lizzo's. And trust me, being there, (laughs) she didn't do this as a PR stunt. She was just, are you all okay? Did I say your name right? Is this what you want me to say about you? Am I putting your thing back? Is this what it's like? It was so important for her, for us to feel that we got that moment, those millions of eyeballs for our movements. It was one of the most powerful things I've ever seen in my life. Lizzo, if you're listening, we love you, (laughs) just so you know. All right, Reshma, before we close out, any final parting words for our listeners? I'm just, I'm really excited to be here and I know work humans doing amazing work. And I think the technology that you have and the recognition technology that you have could actually make, I think, really huge changes on the world and the workplace that we want to see. So I'm excited to see it happen. Thank you so much for that. I mean, I think it has such a place in today's workplace, you know, as we're changing the way we work, as we're reimagining. I think the idea of using technology to connect each Mm -hmm. other at work is just brilliant, right? So the old HR technology used to help people do things, but it was not designed to make people feel things Mm. and to connect people and make people whose accomplishments would be otherwise invisible, visible. There's so much potential. So thank you for that shout out. And thank you so much for being here with us. This was really a treat and a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. 